The most sustainable strategy for me is to tell the truth and to live in such a way that it makes it easy to tell the truth, right? And it's like, well, gosh, that's kind of a no-brainer, but it's also so helpful to hear. It's like, it's in my best interest and Aspen's best interest that I be ruthlessly honest, that I be incredibly, deliberately truthful. And then if I've set that boundary for myself, like I do not keep secrets, I tell the truth, there's nothing that I'm going to hide, there's nothing that I'm gonna shade or make gray. Like if I actually hold myself to that standard, well then what's wild is I have a vested interest now to act in a way that's virtuous and good. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Jed. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. One of the things that I often find really helpful is to look back on things that I've read and to document some of the quotes that really stood out to me in that book or some of the takeaways that I documented as I was reading the book. And I wanted to share some of the takeaways from a book that was wildly impactful for me whenever I read it a few years ago. That book was Beyond Order by Jordan Peterson. Now, if you're not familiar with Jordan Peterson, he's a former university professor, former clinical psychologist. Now he's kind of an all around ruckus maker. I don't know exactly what you would call him, but he's a thought leader that can be wildly controversial. But the thing that I really appreciate about him is he just seems to be a conscientious observer of human nature, both individually and socially. And within that, there are so many principles, practices, takeaways, paradigms that we can kind of extract. And while he doesn't really necessarily write technically about leadership, so much of what he does write about can be easily transposed into a leadership context. And so when I kind of look at my experience with this book, I can say that I would put this on the list of books that legitimately transformed the way that I think and the way that I act. Like I can point to specific things that I did differently out of reading this book. And I'm going to share some of those with you as we walk through these takeaways. And maybe even more profound than just changing some of the tactics that I was taking, it changed the way I think. Obviously, Beyond Order, the subtitle to it is called 12 More Rules for Life. And that is kind of alluding to the fact that it's the follow-up of his first book, which is 12 Rules for Life, which is equally good. I just haven't yet sat down and documented my takeaways on that. So there's 12 Rules for Life in Beyond Order. Therefore, it seems appropriate and good to have 12 takeaways. Some of these will be things that I kind of just originally took out of the text. Others of them will be direct quotes that we go through. So let's go ahead and jump in. These are 12 takeaways from Jordan Peterson's Beyond Order. Number one was just something that I wrote. It says that isolation will drive you mad. The absence of real human connection robs you of the opportunity to have your bad, crazy, and untrue thoughts confronted. Then in quotes, people remain mentally healthy, not merely because of the integrity of their own minds, but because they are constantly being reminded how to think, act, and speak by those around them. So this was such a powerful idea for me because I think it took the idea of rich relationships and human connection from the realm of luxury or human need to responsibility. Because here's what I kind of learned and really reflected on in reading this section of the book. 
there are ideas that start in my head that are bad, untrue, inaccurate, and crazy. (laughs) And I would go even uh, beyond that and be bold enough to say there are ideas that start in your head that are bad, inaccurate, untrue, and crazy. Okay, that's just part of being human, right? So those ideas start in our head. The problem isn't that those ideas start in our head. The problem is that when we engage in isolation, those ideas stay in our head. And when they stay in our head, they don't just go away, they fester. And because we have these incorrect, inaccurate paradigms of the world, of our business, of our marriage, of our relationships, of our parenting style, because those inaccuracies are filling our mind and growing, we start to see them as being true. And something that started off as an idea, unless it's confronted socially by other people that get to hear it, well, then it's going to start to move from the realm of idea to model for perceiving the world. And it's amazing. If you deviate an inch every single day, you could look up three years from now and be totally crazy. That's the power and reason why life-giving, healthy, honest, open, real relationship is so important and necessary. Because the relationships that I'm in give me an opportunity to voice my bad, untrue, inaccurate, unhealthy ideas. And when I voice them, it's not even that people just go out of their way to say, Alex, that's a bad idea. Or Alex, that's not true. Sometimes they do that. But sometimes they just give me a weird look. And what Jordan Peterson points out in Beyond Order is that like all of those little expressions where people tilt their head or people give you quizzical eyes or people say, man, I don't want to spend time around that idea. Let's change the subject. That all registers in my mind. And in registering those, I realize, oh, some of these things are not socially acceptable. Some of these things are not the way the world operates. And I return back to center. Biggest takeaway is that isolation is not just one of those things that it's like, oh, you shouldn't have it because it makes you lonely. Obviously, that's horrible and we don't want you to be lonely. But especially if you're in leadership, it's really important that you're not isolated because if you're isolated, you don't have anyone around you to confront your horrible ideas. And if no one is confronting those things, they will start to become truths that you live by. Takeaway number two, this is just a quote. It is better to presume ignorance and invite learning than to assume sufficient knowledge and risk the consequent blindness. I'm going to read it again like I so often have to do anything anytime I read anything by Jordan Peterson because it's got a little bit of depth and substance to it. It is better to presume ignorance and invite learning than to assume sufficient knowledge and assume the consequent blindness. There's a Carl Jung quote associated with this idea, and he said, if you want to be a master, you first must be willing to look like a fool. So many of us, myself included, never get to experience mastery because we aren't willing to first look like a beginner. But I think it's one of the greatest areas of growth that I've experienced over the course of probably about the past four years is I've grown in my willingness to say, I'm a total beginner. It's one of the great joys of my life right now as Aspen and I are preparing for our first kid is 
I am not putting up any pretenses to say like, I've got this, or I know how to be a great dad, or I've got this figured out, or I know the path. (laughs) I'm actually being very vocal and very open about the fact that I do not know the path. I do not know what I'm doing, right? And, And I've never been a dad before. So how on earth could I be an expert on being a dad, right? I am an amateur. I am a beginner. But what's so cool is that the minute you say, I'm an amateur, I'm a beginner, right? I'm just getting started and trying to learn everything I can. Oh my gosh, learning, growth, opportunity, make themselves so wildly available to you. Conversely, my old strategy, my old way of doing things was awful because anytime I would engage with someone something new, I would try to pretend like I had it figured out. And in doing so, I close myself off to learning. I close myself off to growth. I close myself off to the advice and wisdom of others. I close myself off to the opportunity to get better because I felt like I had to have this pretense of I've got this. Listen, real quick. I want to tell you in the most loving way possible, you don't got this. And and the reason why I can say that is I don't got this either. And what if you looked at the area that you're strongest right now? Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your parenting. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. What if you looked at the area that you're strongest and you had the guts to look at that area and say, I'm a total beginner. I am in kindergarten. What's crazy is you start to see so much possibility and opportunity the minute you're willing to embrace that kind of humility. Number three, also a quote, that which you most need will be found where you wish least to look. I'm going to say it again. That which you most need will be found where you wish least to look. If I remember correctly, there's kind of an idea that he presents in this section of the book that says that the treasure is always by the dragon. And we can see that really kind of archetypally laid out in a lot of the narratives that as a culture we fall in love with. But uh, one that I actually read simultaneously at the time that I read Beyond Order was The Hobbit. And that's kind of cool because he references The Hobbit. And, and The Hobbit is this idea that Bilbo Baggins, young Bilbo Baggins, has to go to find the treasure, the gem, but the gem is right next to the dragon. And what does that mean? It means that our greatest desire often sits next to the thing we most fear. And what's weird about that is it just seems true. Like the more I kind of realize how that narrative idea overlaps into my life, it kind of blows my mind is, but then it can also be really practically helpful because then I can look at the things that make me most afraid, right? And I can look at the things that make me most uncomfortable. I can look at the things that I most avoid and I I can have a shallow understanding of those and just say, okay, those are just a dragon, and there's nothing to see there. I don't want to go anywhere near that. Or I can embrace courageous curiosity and I can say, what exactly is going on there? Because there's a reason why I'm so afraid of that. And there's a high likelihood that it is actually guarding or covering the thing that I most value, most desire, and most wish to have. 
And so our fears can actually become practically really helpful. And then, man, uh, game over when you start to develop the courage to not run from the dragon, but rather uh, put armor on, gather up your posse and run towards the dragon and say that I'm going to fight this thing because it is guarding something that I feel called to and that I desire. Let's go to number four. The soul willing to transform as deeply as necessary is the most effective enemy of the demonic serpents of ideology and totalitarianism. Let's read it again because we kind of have to to understand what he's saying here. The soul willing to transform as deeply as necessary is the most effective enemy of the demonic serpents of ideology and totalitarianism. So there's a lot worth breaking down here. Let's first start with the soul. I think it's really helpful to remember, like, you have a soul. There is a part of you that is not just flesh, bones, water, and blood, right? There's a part of you that is incomprehensibly deep. And that soul, if uh, you can collaborate with it in such a way that it's willing to transform, that you say, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to move. I'm willing to grow. I'm willing to become something tomorrow that I am not today. I'm willing to sacrifice the old, dead, unhelpful parts of me. And I'm willing to cut those things off in a process of never-ending renewal and reinvention. I'm willing to see Parts of myself that feel so much like me burned away if it means me becoming more of who I actually am. Well, man, if you're willing to do that, that's going to be the most effective enemy of the dragon that we talked about. Here's what I often have to return to recognizing. There are parts of me that I shouldn't take with me moving forward. And one of the things that when I reflect on my growth journey as a man, as a leader, as a husband, as a Christ follower, when I reflect on my growth journey in each of those areas, if you were to ask me like, okay, well, what has transpired over the course of the past 10 years to make you into more of who you are today? It actually doesn't look like me doing more things and adding things on and chasing new adventures. It actually looks like me becoming less and less of outside and external and peripheral things and more and more of who I actually am. But I mean, that that feels like surgery, right? That is amputation because if work feels like part of my identity, Uh, It's not part of my identity, but if I've incorporated it into my identity and then I cut that thing off and say, no, this is no longer going to be part of my identity. It's going to be where I I serve. Oh, my gosh, there's blood everywhere right? to make the most gruesome picture possible. Right. Because it's like I, I feel as though I'm ripping part of me away in reality. I've gotten something that is not me way wrapped up into who I actually am and extracting that is going to be incredibly difficult, but the necessary suffering associated with sacrifice is the thing that will prepare me to move towards the dragon with courage and actually be equipped to be able to fight it. So what are the things 
that aren't actually you. They're just part of your image. They're just part of the way that you've been raised. They're just part of the expectations you place on yourself that, man, it would be so painful to cut them off. It would be so painful to grow. It would be so painful to do something different in that area. What if your soul became willing to amputate those things? Well, that's going to make you wildly prepared to engage with whatever comes your way. Number five, proactively trusting people is the best strategy for unveiling the best that is inside of them. This is not willful blindness that is naive to the possibility of betrayal. It is realistic hopefulness fueled by the courage to risk in pursuit of what is worthwhile. So this isn't a direct quote. This was just one of my takeaways that I had written down. Let's just highlight one piece of this proactively trusting people. We kind of have two ways to come at people, right? We don't get to be neutral, so we've got two options. We can choose that people are inherently untrustworthy and therefore operate not trusting them until they prove themselves otherwise. Or we can say people are trustworthy and I'm going to choose to trust them within wisdom, obviously, until I see evidence otherwise. Now, here's the principle that it would be wise to remember. People often act the way that you treat them. So if you treat everyone as untrustworthy, don't be surprised when they act and lead in a way that is untrustworthy, right? Because not only are you not trusting them, you're giving them reason to not trust you. Conversely, it's wild how if you choose to err on the side of trusting people, honestly, it will blow your mind how people rise to the occasion. This has so many ramifications for leadership. It applies to hiring. It applies to delegation. It applies to onboarding. It applies to handing off sensitive information like passwords and bank account information and financial information. Obviously, this all needs to ha happen under an umbrella of wisdom, but I can't tell you how many leaders play it close to the chest with regard to their finances and with regard to the state of the company and with regard to things going on in their life and things like that. And they're operating, they wouldn't say this, but they're operating with kind of this general perspective of people are not trustworthy. What's a better perspective? If people have the information they need to be able to handle this, then they are often, not always, but often trustworthy. And so certainly sharing financial information about your company should always be paired with a high degree of communication and education. But what I see is that oftentimes guardedness, closed offness, lack of transparency actually creates an environment of distrust. It's not the byproduct of it. So proactively trusting people is the takeaway there. Let's move to number six. Be outrageously skeptical of hyper-simplified terms that reduce complex realities into single words or phrases. Language is important and generalizations are a slippery slope. There's a multitude of ways that 
we can kind of take this takeaway, but maybe just an example that I think he might offer in the book. If, if he didn't offer it in the book, I think I've heard about him talk about this before, is people will use words like the poor or poverty, and they will use these generalized sweeping terms to describe an entire population of people. And then they'll ask a, a really ridiculous question like, what, what's the solution for poverty? Or even worse, the solution for poverty is blank, right? And not only will people do this, if I'm not careful, I will do this, right? I will boil things down into generalized terms to make it simple for me to understand and then start to look for or even prescribe uh, singular solutions for that particular generalized term or problem. Uh, The thing is, is that the world is so much more complex than just the word poverty or quote unquote, the poor. Because if we think about like the poor for a second, well, what is true about the poor? Well, there are people that are living on the streets that are absolutely taking advantage of society. They're engaging in lies and deceit, and they are really trying to just get by without having to do any work on their own. That is true. Those people are out there. What else is true? There are men and women who served our country and put their lives on the line in combat and suffered the consequences of PTSD And we've done a horrible job of taking care of those men and women. And they're now living on the streets and just, I mean, scratching and clawing to number one, just preserve their mental state just to survive and and much less think about dinner tonight. That's also there. Those are just two options in a multitude of options. There's also people that have been sexually abused. There's people whose parents abandoned them. There's people who grew up in poverty, right? There's all these different populations within quote unquote the poor. And if we just say, oh, well, the poor are just manipulative or the poor are just downtrodden, that, that you are taking entire swaths of population and putting them all under one umbrella. It's why we need to be so careful with our language and so careful with our prescriptions. Because just because one solution may work for one really specific subsect of your company doesn't mean that it's going to work for everyone. How does this practically play out in leadership? Well, one of the ways that I often see this uh, in coaching leaders and working with CEOs is maybe they'll have a couple of troublemakers within their team. And they'll kind of come to a coaching call and they'll say, man, out of our team of, you know, 100 people right now, we've got four people that are really giving us problems right now. And they'll start to talk about those four people as a generalized term, like these four never do this. These four always do this. And one of the things that we really challenge our coaches to do is say, like, refuse to allow people to just treat you know, four individuals as a group that is all doing the same thing. Because what often happens if we say, okay, it's going to take a little bit longer, but let's look at each of these four individuals individually. Well, then what you find is that they're not a generalized group. You've got one that is not a culture fit and should be fired immediately. You've got one that was onboarded really poorly and their underperformance is actually not their fault. They just need to be trained better. You've got one that's in the wrong seat on the bus and you've got one that has a really bad manager. Now, if we were to take all those four people 
and just call them the group of four that's really bad and then apply one solution to all of them, like fire them, uh, you're missing out on so much opportunity, but you're also not engaging with the nuances that always exist in a complex organization. So maybe one of the practical takeaways from that is look at individuals individually. And as the takeaway says, be outrageously skeptical of hyper-simplified terms. Number seven, Jesus was simultaneously a radical revolutionary and a rabbi that was deeply rooted in tradition. So so that's a, a really wild duality, right? Jesus was simultaneously, at the same time, he was a radical revolutionary that was turning the world upside down. And at the same time that he was turning the world upside down, he was remaining deeply rooted in the value and power of tradition. We can't neglect this if we read the Gospels honestly. Because if we read the Gospels honestly, what do we see? Well, we see a guy that was saying things that had never been said before. That is certainly true. And he was also very much doing things that had never been done before. That's one of the reasons why they or we killed him, right? But what else do we see? We see a guy that had entire sections of the Old Testament memorized, We see a guy that was able to quote from the prophets and the law in a way that was remarkably specific and relevant and helpful. We see a man that didn't just say, man, this is all awful. We need to burn it all to the ground. We saw a guy that said, no, it's not all awful. We've just in some ways misunderstood the heart of some of it. And we need to get back to the heart behind some of these principles. And this section of the book is really helpful because it reminds us that we never want to swing too radically in one direction or the other. I believe the phrase he uses in the book is that we should not needlessly denigrate social institutions. So it can be really easy to look at the state of our country right now and be like, well, man, we're in a bad way, right? That like this America thing, like it clearly isn't working, right? Like look at all the division, look at everything that's going wrong. Uh, you know, we just need to completely burn this thing down and start over. And it's like, well, don't be so sure, right? Because there are men and women that gave their lives to build institutions that are unlike any the world has ever seen. And certainly, To refer back to what Jesus already highlighted for us in his example, there are things that have gotten way off track because we've lost the heart of them. But just because we've lost the heart of things doesn't mean we should abandon some of the structures and principles that people literally died to give us. And so it can be really tempting, especially for young people, right, to to look on the old way of doing things and to say there's no value there. Oh man, there's so much value there. There's so much value in the way things used to be done. Because by the way, if things weren't done the way they used to be done, you wouldn't be here today. So you better be a little bit grateful. But also, on the other side of that, if we're rooted in tradition, if we're hyper-conservative in nature, if we like stability, We've got to recognize, man, I have a propensity to devalue and degrade things that are new and innovative. And I've got this this man stuck up Scrooge inside of me that just crosses my arms at every new idea. And if I'm not careful, that will limit creativity and life and joy. Because remember, like, let's just use the political example, right? 
If you're hyper conservative and you're that person that becomes so rooted in the ideology that like you're going to cross your arms and say nothing new, nothing creative, nothing innovative. Let's just protect what is. Let's make sure we don't get too crazy here. Well, I'm not so sure that if you grew up in the 1800s in Britain that you wouldn't have been too like you might have been on the redcoat side instead of the American side. Because what were the Americans? Well, they were this band of radical, chaotic revolutionaries that people looked at as anarchists, right? And and certainly there were people back then that were Scrooges. They crossed their arms and they weren't able to see the heart of that innovation for what it was. They were just opposed to anything that was new or threatening. Gosh, you don't want to be that person. I love the way Jordan Peterson presents it. There's order and there's chaos. We want to be the force that mediates between the two. Number eight, don't discount beauty. It speaks to your soul. So the rule that he offers in accordance with this is to choose one room and make it as beautiful as possible. And he highlights that there's real value to to making things beautiful. And I think that actually calls back to what we were called to do as sons and daughters of God is like the kingdom of God is what is good and right and beautiful and true. And that as image bearers, he's given us this unique opportunity on an earth that is marred by sin to go around and make things beautiful. But also in the process of making things beautiful, we also get to admire and relish beauty. And if we're not careful, we can get so busy that we miss beauty. Uh, Don't be that person. Don't be that leader, right? One of the things that I, I can honestly say, praise God to this, because it's not something that I intentionally sought out. It's not something that I tried to have happen. In fact, if you would have asked me five years ago, could this happen to you? I probably would have said no, because I just would have said, no, I'm not really wired that way. I actually think I have like an emotional connection to nature now that I didn't have before. Like there are specific moments and it can be in places of grandeur, like Glacier National Park, or it can literally just be at the park down the street from Aspen and I's house sitting on a bench where it feels weird to say this because this doesn't really feel like me, but I can be almost overwhelmed at the beauty of creation. And it's not something I intentionally pursued. It's something that I think God gave me where it's like I can be so emotionally enveloped in the beauty that's all around us now, especially in nature. I think nature is where I experience it the most. But if I was to say like, man, how did God do that to me? He slowed me down. Right. He put me in places where I didn't have technology, where I was by myself for a bit, where there was just silence and where I I had run all the miles I could. And he just gave me space to breathe. And it's in that breathing that I think my eyes were opened and I just started to see beauty. And what was so crazy is it was always there before. I I just didn't see it, right? And I could literally go to the same places. Some of them were the same places, and it would have been a radically different experience. And And I would have been able to say it's beautiful, but I wouldn't have been able to experience it. So the idea that beauty speaks to your soul, holy cow, yes, I endorse that message because I feel like I've experienced that. Maybe one thing worth mentioning is it's like I still have a lot of growth in this area because I have friends they, they have an incredible art galleries here in Phoenix, Arizona, specifically in Scottsdale. And I've been with some of my friends before and will look at pieces of art 
And it's almost like they'll see things that I don't, right? They will be emotionally affected by certain pieces of art in ways that I'm just not. Like I just look at it and be like, I, I, it's almost like we're looking at two different things. So what's so cool there though is like, you realize there's more to unlock and it's such a mystery, like how that's unlocked. I don't know what it is, but there's more to, to go. There's more to grow in that. Let's move to number nine. Memories are not strictly for nostalgia. They are protection against constantly repeating the past. We should get to the bottom of what we remember. The most practical takeaway I have from this is that if I have dreams or if I have bad memories that really stick with me, like they gnaw at me, I have something that I do pretty committedly now is I, if there are things that I, I can tell, like, okay, this thing's really getting to me, it's gnawing at me, I have no idea why. Well, in many ways, what I do is I say, well, that thing is now a dragon. And what am I going to do? I'm going to write about it. And oftentimes, if I do write about it, then I, and then I also make a decision, like I'm going to talk about it to someone, whether it be a counselor, whether it be Aspen, someone else, right? And I have no idea the, the neurological side of this. What I can speak only to is the benefits of it. It is so wildly freeing and helpful. There is something about writing what you remember and there's something about talking to people about what you remember or what I found is what, what I had dreams about that is it just like releases the grip of that thing over me. And instead of that thing driving me, I now get to incorporate that and say, okay, well, that's something that I do remember. And I get to look at it from a posture, not of just emotional reactionism, but rather from a posture of proactive responsibility. And man, that's such a gift to be able to do that. And so pay attention to the things that are gnawing at you and don't avoid those things. Write those things down. Don't be surprised that in the writing, you're going to experience uh, transforming freedom. Number 10, be honest about everything. And then there's a quote in marriage. If you tell your partner the truth and strive to act so that you can tell the truth about how you act, then you have someone to rely on when the seas become high. Gosh, <laughs> you know, if I was to make a greatest hits of the things I'm so grateful I read and learned prior to getting married, this would be on that list for sure. And it's not this like wildly complex idea, but in marriage, like when we're married, we've made a covenant agreement, right? Like the covenant agreement is under God. I'm not just committing to Aspen, right? I'm committing to God, right? So under God, this is my covenant is that I'm in this for the long haul. I'm committed to this through thick and thin. Well, then if that's the case, the most sustainable strategy for me is to tell the truth and to live in such a way that it makes it easy to tell the truth. Right. And it's like, well, gosh, that's kind of a no brainer, but it's also so helpful to hear. It's like it's in my best interest and Aspen's best interest that I be ruthlessly honest, that I be incredibly deliberately truthful. And then if I set that boundary for myself, like I do not keep secrets. I tell the truth. There's nothing that I'm going to hide. There's nothing that I'm going to shade or make gray. Like if I actually hold myself to that standard, well, then what's wild is I have a vested interest now to act in a way that's virtuous and good. Now, can I act in a way that's perfect? Absolutely not. Thank God I believe in grace, because if I didn't believe in grace, I'll tell you what, I would keep a lot of secrets, 
And, and how do I know that? Well, because there was a previous version of Alex a long time ago that didn't have a robust understanding or belief in grace. And that guy had a lot of secrets because I couldn't tell people stuff because I didn't believe that I was forgiven and could receive forgiveness from other people. Now it's like, I believe in grace. I'm going to do my best. And I really am going to do my best because I hate sharing when I did something wrong. But when I do something wrong, not if, when, I'm going to tell the truth about that thing. And, and the thing that gives me the motivation to do that is it's kind of like your 401k or it's kind of like your Roth IRA, right? It's like I'm investing in something that I will reap the compounding returns of, right? And, and that can be a really good thing or a really bad thing, right? I'm investing in something that I will reap the compounding returns of. And so if I'm investing lies, deceit, half-truths, secrets. I'm, I will. I, it's not even a question. I will reap the compounding returns of that. And do I, do I want to do that? <laughs> like, no, right? It's one of the things that, like, it's a really bold statement, but I think it's kind of true that Jordan Peterson says, is he says that he is convinced after his time working as a clinical psychologist, as a university professor, as spending, I mean, 60 plus years with people around the world, he's convinced that no one gets away with anything ever. <laughs> that is a wild idea, right? And what's even more wild is I think it's actually true. No one actually gets away with anything ever. And... What's crazy is that if I'm going to go on this prideful adventure where I'm going to keep secrets, it will not go well with my soul because suddenly I'm starting to perceive myself as one out of six billion. I'm one person out of six billion that has cracked the code on how to get away with something. And it's just not true, right? And so... I have a vested interest to tell the truth and to live in such a way that telling the truth is actually really easy. And that's just such a gift. It's such a gift that I'm so grateful for. And what's so cool is that it's a gift that's readily accessible today. It's not like we have to wait or it's not like anyone's closed off to this gift. It doesn't matter how far you've gone down the wrong road, you can start telling the truth today. And holy cow, I mean, if you built a habit of doing the opposite, it's going to be really hard. But what's the alternative? Continuing to go down a wrong path and then reaping the poor results associated with that? No way. Two more. Before you deal with the disorder and evil in the world, reckon with the evil and disorder inside of yourself. This is, I think, really appropriate for my generation. It can be really easy to say, I want to change the world. And in reality, what we're often doing there is abdicating our responsibility, but also opportunity to change our world. And we can get so caught up in these big, massive causes. Meanwhile, the people that we're responsible for, meaning our spouse, our kids, our team, our community, our neighbors, our church, they feel neglected and abandoned by us. But it's okay because we're out trying to solve for global warming or trying to cure poverty, right? Or trying to fix the situation in Haiti. And, and obviously, I have 
nothing wrong with legitimate, intentional community service in those areas. But man, it's something that I've learned from the Orthodox Jewish community, specifically my friend Naftali. It's just a really helpful phrase that really hits home this idea. Charity begins at home. Four words, charity begins at home. And so we could go on all of these wild escapades to serve everyone else and get a ton of attention for doing it. And meanwhile, our house is a dumpster fire, our kids feel neglected by us, and our business is improperly managed. What is a better approach? God, marriage, kids, work, right? Start with a life-giving, healthy, thriving, vibrant relationship with the God of the universe. Then make sure that your marriage is things that we've already talked about. It's filled with gospel-based grace and truth. Then make sure that your kids feel attended to and served well. One of my pastors at my church recently told me, he said, Alex, for kids, quantity time is quality time. And you can't have quality with kids without the quantity. And so he said, like, it's not like you can go on like these three week stints of being away from your child, but then it's okay because the two hours you spent together was really quality time. He said for them, like they can't distinguish between the two. The quantity is the quality and it's yes and right. And so he said that you've got to, you've got to pursue both. And then out of that work, and when I say work, it's like we get to serve, right? We get to serve at our business. We get to serve on missions trips. We get to serve our community. We get to serve at our church. But let's make sure that we're serving in the areas that are more hidden, that we have been given to steward and be responsible for first. And then out of that, kind of serve others from a posture of overflow so that we're able to give life instead of having to take it. Let's move to number 12. Somewhere deep inside of ourselves, we know the truth that it is better that we are here. Existence, in spite of suffering, is worthwhile. Be grateful for it. That's a big idea, right? So it's probably just worth reading again. Somewhere deep inside of ourselves, we know the truth that it is better that we are here. Existence, in spite of suffering, is worthwhile. Be grateful for it. So let's just look at a few truths that are embedded in this that should blow our minds, but we often take for granted. Truth number one, you exist. <laughs> That's wild, right? Like, what, what are the chances? What are the chances that in this country, on this earth, in this place, at this time, you have a spot? I mean, have you read the data around this? It is absurd. And so let's not just forget that it is an absolute, unprecedented miracle that scientists literally can't explain that you and I exist. And much less, we exist in the most prosperous, blessed time in human history. And even more than that, we live in one of the most blessed and free and prosperous countries in the world. That's absurd. And so often we just take that for granted. So don't miss, like you exist. And then maybe true too, it's good that you exist, right? And it's good that the people around you, that, that they exist. And that word good is interesting because it's subjective. 
right? Good, bad, right, wrong. Like these are things that represent uh, value statements. And so we're saying that it is valuable. It is good. We appreciate the fact that we exist. And what's the evidence of the fact that it's good that we exist? Well, we keep doing it. Like we are still here. And so we're saying, man, it's good to be here. Don't miss that. You're going to get really busy today. You're going to get really busy this week. There's going to be a lot of things that are going on. There, there will be things that you celebrate. There will be things that really feel like turmoil and desperation and suffering. And in the midst of all that, don't forget the freaking miracle it is that you exist. And then don't forget to dwell on the truth that that's a good thing. Well, hopefully it goes without saying like, I'm just really grateful that he took the time to distill some of the best of what he knows in a way that's really practical and really helpful for all of us. I hope that these takeaways were helpful for you. If you haven't read the book, I would highly, highly recommend it. Also, if you would take the time to rate and review the podcast, that's always so helpful for us to get into the ears of people that haven't yet heard about Path for Growth. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.